right, here we are with Kim Iskin. Kim, thanks so much for making the time to chat with me today. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me, Jay. I'm looking forward to this. And so as an editor at Stansbury, your focus has been on, you know, international markets, emerging markets. Could you, for a, for a quick minute, super high level, for anybody who's watching this that's not familiar with you, who are you, Kim, and how do you spend your time? Um, Jay, I, I work in finance for a long time. I've lived in nine countries, um, speak three languages. I've been all over the place. Right now, I live in the U.S. For the past 10 years, I've worked for Stansbury Research as an international analyst. I was a publisher for Stansbury for five years in Singapore. I built up a publishing business focused on Asia. And I spend my time, you know, looking at markets, hanging out with my kids, uh, writing. I write a lot about international markets, economics, geopolitics, uh, trying to think about how things are going to evolve and change and how to best position yourself to kind of get in front of those changes. Okay. Now I want to, uh, let's, let's focus on, on right now, because I feel like I want to cover some big macro concepts with you, some higher level thought processes and how you look at markets and geopolitical events and how you deal with uncertainty and all this stuff. And also there's some pretty near-term, more tactical events occurring for context. This is June 15th for anybody watching. We're about to learn uh, what the rate hike is going to be today. Um, I feel like right now it's it's the heyday. It's the glory days for the doom and gloom pundits, right, Kim? And, and you see this too. It's, it's a big industry in financial media calling for the end of day scenario in maybe a specific asset class and all asset classes. And it's, it, they're sticky headlines because people grab onto fear, right? We tend to catastrophize situations and, and play them out in our minds, expecting them to be the worst case scenario every time. And rarely in my experience does the world play out that way. But right now there's some real dire situations. We're talking about a hot war in Europe, um, pretty catastrophic market crash, various assets looking incredibly uncertain. What are you paying attention to right now? What's, what's catching your eye in terms of what really matters? I think, Jay, in this sort of scenario, I, uh, I think back to other end-of-world scenarios that I've lived through. I, I, was, I lived in Russia in 1998, and that was, there was a huge market crash then. That was part of the big emerging markets. Well, at the, at the time, it was a big emerging markets crisis. Uh, I started my career in, in the Mexican tequila crisis a few years before that. And then there was 2008, 2009. That was big for everybody. Mm. But in emerging markets in particular were enormous. The, uh, everything, everything moves in cycles. And that's true for markets. That's true for life. That's true for everything. And I'm a huge believer in mean reversion. So what I would be looking out for right now is where that pendulum is swinging too far over right? Because everything corrects, everything overcorrects. And it was pretty clear to pretty much everyone that over the past few years, we've had a massive overcorrection of too much money going into the system, assets being hyperinflated um, beyond any sort of recognition. And yes, there was going to be some sort of uh, that was going to correct. And now we're seeing that. And inevitably with this sort of thing, the baby gets thrown out with the bathwater. So we have all sorts of, of fundamentally strong businesses and assets getting shucked out the back door just because, you know, people need to sell, people need to raise cash. People say, dear God, I don't know what's coming. I better just get out of this. Mm. Um, and that will, I think, go on for a while. And it is, it is a cycle. It's, you know, it is inevitable. That is always inevitable. Uh, 
what I think when you're in the, in the teeth of it, you're always saying, you're always thinking, well, is this part of the cycle or is this structural, right? Because you yeah. have different sorts of change and you have the structural change where something breaks, one of those tectonic plates fractures. And that's what you're concerned about. That's, you, you know, what if, you know, something truly unexpected happens and something that we can't even talk about because it's, if we talk about it, it's not a black swan, right? Because yeah, yeah. we wouldn't even, it wouldn't even occur to us, but something like if the Fed didn't step in in September, 2008 with Lehman, and if, if things were let completely go, then what, then you have massive bankruptcies, you have a domino style collapse. Um, that's what you're afraid of. I think that what we've seen some in Russia and Ukraine uh, and some of the sanctions and some of the reaction to what Russia is. And I think that has been something beyond cyclical. That is that that's taking some of the fiber of, of the rule of law that binds us, us being the international business community encompassing everyone and ripping that. And I think that's very dangerous. I think that's something to look out for. Um, so uh, that's an indirect answer to your question. But no, I think I, in some, I'm, I'm looking out for those sorts of things that do rip the fiber that are the structural change. And then the, the cyclical, there's lots of money to be made in those cyclical changes. It's a question of, of finding the right sorts of assets that have been thrown out with everything else and then anticipating when that's gonna reverse and you're never gonna pick the bottom, but yeah, you're careful along the way and you're looking at, at what is really holding value and what is being unfairly marked down. Yeah, I'm so curious if, you see anything, you know, in the context of what you just shared, that's, that's heading towards being different than it was for the previous decade. And I mean, or, or multiple decades, you touched on Russia and the seizure, seizure of financial assets, you know, is this the trigger point um, kind of like coming off the gold standard? I've heard a handful of pundits that I respect individuals like Luke Roman saying this event is as consequential as Nixon taking the United States off the gold standard. I'm talking about US and, and Europe seizing 600 billion of, of foreign reserves. Um, you know, do you think that will have massive impacts on um, uh, currency reserve status moving forward? Um, do you think that, uh, let's start with that one actually. What are your thoughts on that, Kim? I think in the bigger picture, yes, because what that, what everything, everything that's happened the message is that the sort of Western club, if they decide someone else has broken the rules badly enough and need to be spanked, uh, they can just suspend the rules for those, for those guys. Um, on the one hand, I can see how it is an exceptional circumstance and how, yes, Russia deserves to be spanked. On the other hand, it is kind of saying, well, what's the bar next time? You know, yeah. Are the Uyghurs being mistreated in China? Well, that's pretty awful, right? That's genocide. So how is China punished for that? Well, you know, in India, the Muslims are getting on the wrong side a lot of things, are getting the short end of the stick in a lot of things. How should we punish Modi and, and, and India? And then it's a slippery slope. And then at a certain point, yeah, some country saying, hang on a second, you know, I can't have a couple of keystrokes deny my country of their reserves. So what am I going to do? I got to diversify. I think... Um, yeah, I think this is, I've written about this too. This, I think this is a turning point for the US dollar just because the US dollar now has been weaponized. But turning points, we won't, uh, it, it takes years. <clears throat> Excuse me, it takes a very long time. This isn't something that can change. And the obvious question is what replaces 
the US dollar? And the answer to that is, I have no idea. Yeah, um, I don't think anyone has any real idea. Yeah, you, you have some gold cryptos, maybe someday you have some sort of SDR uh, with the IMF. Uh, yeah. It's not going to be the the, the yuan. Um, no, not going to be the no. euro. Not gonna now, be euro. having said that, because you're right, nothing is large enough to replace it as a reserve currency. But if countries start allocating a larger percentage to one single thing, um, you know, that's going to be an avalanche of capital moving towards something. And, and I'm referring to gold. I'm really curious, you know, if we see more central banks around the world start to not, not go all in on gold, that's not going to happen, but start to increase their allocation to gold. And if collectively this happens in 20, 30 central banks around the world, that's a, that's a tsunami of cash moving towards one finite asset. And the investor in me is like, I want to get in front of that avalanche, Right. So do you think that thesis is something I should be paying attention to is, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm looking at the gold price right now thinking it's been pretty sleepy, uh, not much going on, which is what a safe haven asset supposed to do. Um, but, you know, maybe that game is going to change in the next sort of three, five years here dramatically if, if this is a trend that, that occurs. What do you think? Yeah, I agree. I think it makes a lot of sense for central banks. I think it makes a lot of sense for individual uh, investors with patience. Now, yeah. the tricky thing is you you invest in the gold miner and then it goes poof and it does nothing and then it drifts back down yeah, yeah, and yeah. you're dead money for five years. Yeah. Uh, if you have patience, that's fantastic. And if I, I think I've always thought of gold as much more of a, as you just said, a safe haven. You put five, 10% of your assets in it and you kind of forget about it. Mm. Now, maybe you increase that allocation in anticipation of what we're discussing happening. Um, now you just have patience and, you know, let's say markets double from where uh, stock markets double from where they are now over the next three years. I just made that up, but let's say, yeah. and your goal doesn't go anywhere. Well, then what? You got to stick with it. If, if yeah, you really yeah, believe yeah. it. Um, and that's a good thing about being a, an individual investor because you don't have a quarterly return target. You don't have an annual return target like fund managers do. So you can afford to, to, to have under, to underperform for a while. Um, I think just to go back to your, your broader question, Jay, currencies and in terms of what is changing, I think uh, globalization very broadly is on pause and in the process of being rolled back. And if you look back for the past 30 or 40 years, globalization has really been a huge driver of incredible wealth uh, throughout the emerging markets and throughout developed markets. Um, I think we could certainly characterize China as one of the biggest beneficiaries of globalization. And that has been one of the major wealth creating events, developments in history for China in particular, as manufacturing moved globally, as tariffs came down, as people were able to access more goods more cheaply um, and were able to sell goods more broadly, more cheaply. It's been incredible. But what we've seen with the events over the past few years and supply chain problems and then the politicization of manufacturing. Mm. Um, and then now, you know, everything that's happening with, with the Russia-Ukraine war, uh, I think we're increasingly seeing the world kind of divvied up into separate blocks. And if I have a big manufacturing operation in China and I mostly produce for Western markets, I'm thinking long and hard about about what I do about that. If I'm Walmart and I get whatever percent of my goods from China, I'm thinking, shit, what, what happens if, you know, whatever, there's another trade war, there's who knows what will happen. Mm -hmm. um, 
and I think it makes sense. It's one of those, uh, it's kind of like a prisoner's dilemma, right? What I do for myself makes the most sense for me. But when I maximize that out to everyone acting in their own best, on their own personal interest, it winds up being the worst possible scenario for everybody put together. Um, and I think that's what we're going to be seeing because globalization has yielded such benefits. Yeah. But now we're seeing different countries, different corporates, different sectors acting in their own best interests, which will ultimately undercut the best interests of the whole. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now, now I got to ask if globalization has contributed to more goods, more cheap and cheaper goods, which it absolutely has. Globalization has been deflationary, you could say. Then as we trend towards deglobalization, you'd have to agree or you'd have to assume this is inherently inflationary combined with the other inflationary forces we're experiencing. Do you agree? Is this more fuel to the inflation fire? Oh, completely. Because the, you know, the most basic macro, macro 101 will talk about how you produce where it's most efficient to produce, right? Right, right. And now we're kind of turning that upside down and we're putting other considerations above in front of price. So we're saying, you know, I can produce in country in, in China for X, but because of these three factors, I can no longer do that. So I have to produce for 1.2X, 1.5X, 2X right. somewhere else. And am I going to eat that, eat that price food, price increase? Of course not. So yeah, I, I think it's inherently inflationary. Now, I, I, I hesitate to feel like this is necessarily a bad thing. I mean, I, I feel like I grew up in an incredibly spoiled environment. I live in the Pacific Northwest. I can eat fresh bananas in December. Like that's not necessarily maybe a realistic expectation that I should have. And if we trend back towards deglobalization, making local economies more robust in terms of like, you know, local to local um, supply and demand, it's probably a more sustainable model in the long term. What do you think about that? Uh, I think if we're happy with higher prices and less choice, mm. I think uh, we, being a very collective we, have been spoiled. Yeah. Um, one of the things, I mean, I, I've lived abroad for most of my life, and I just moved back to the U.S. a year ago, and I still walk into my, my local grocery store, and it is incredible. Just the, the incredible variety, incredible range of goods. And it's something that most people in the United States don't entirely recognize because you go to most, almost any other country, um, well, Canada probably one, being one of the exceptions, but, uh, and you just don't have that sort of selection. Yeah. You don't have the, that sort of variety. And um, the day that, you know, instead of 60 cereals, I only have 20 and they cost 50% yeah. more. Yeah. Maybe cereal is a bad, a bad choice because I'm guessing not a lot of cereal production goes on abroad is imported in, but sure, work sure. with me. Yeah. Um, televisions, whatever. Uh, uh, and electronics in general, the, the price in general, uh, broadly speaking, has been trending downward for decades as yeah. production has gotten cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. What happens if that stops? And you know, I can't buy my, my Sony TV at Costco for a thousand bucks, but I buy something smaller, probably not as good. Uh, it's produced locally that costs twice as much. Mm. I don't know. Mm. I can say, great. Well, it's made in America. Okay. Sure. Yeah. How far does that patriotism get me? Yeah. yeah I don't yeah. know. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm torn on that one. That's a really good perspective. Um, 
All right. Okay. So I want to pull on a thread that you shared before I hit record here. We were talking about diversifying assets and you said diversification is a bigger conversation than diversifying your financial assets. You shared an example of a friend of yours who owns some real estate, some stocks, some other financial assets, I believe in Russia. This is in the late nineties when the Russian economy crashed all of this gentleman's wealth as diversified as it was through the financial system in Russia crashed collectively. And you shared some awesome examples of what diversification should really mean to really hedge yourself. Can you expand on this or, or what did I, how did I do on summarizing it first? No, that was fantastic, Jay. And it, this actually kind of segues nicely from our, our uh, from speak talk of, of deglobalization. Uh, I kind of think of your asset base, your personal asset base. Most people think, well, I own you know, this much in, in real estate. Think of it purely in financial terms. Whereas I think something that's much more powerful is, is to think of your, uh, your asset base in terms of how you produce, how you generate security, as well as wealth over the long term. So that's based on the languages you speak. That's based on the, uh, the financial systems, systems you're exposed to, the currencies you hold. That's based on your network. It's based on your education. It's based on your citizenships, where you can call home. And all those things kind of feed into how diversified you are because you have, right, my, my former colleague in Moscow on paper, <clears throat> excuse me, on paper, he looks very well diversified, but everything of his, including his education, his language, his passport, his network, his work experience, were all based in Russia. Now, if you were someone in this part of the world saying, oh, I would never, never put all of my assets in one market like that. Well, a lot of retail investors don't realize it, especially in big markets like the United States. They think, yeah, sure, I'm well diversified. I have, you know, I hold X percent in this fund and uh, this much in tech. And I have, uh, you know, I have my mortgage on my house. And, but it's all in one currency. It's all in one financial system. It's all in one country. And we've seen not too long ago, countries can decide on a dime to close their borders. Suddenly, that American passport isn't worth much as an international travel document. Now, just because you know things happen, these things evolve and we can't tell how that's, who knows what's gonna happen next. So in my mind, diversification should include, must include um, looking at where else you can live and what other banking systems you, you store your money in, uh, looking at where else you can get a job if you needed to. Um, looking at what other places you could call home, what other citizenships you hold, because the world is, um, can be a very small place very suddenly if things go bad. As my friend in Moscow learned, he couldn't just pick up and go somewhere else because he held a passport that, that you know, at the time you couldn't travel very far with a Russian passport unless you got a visa, unless you had to do all these things. And then all your money was tied up and all of his money was tied up in a Russian bank. Um, how do you get that out? How do you convert it to euro or dollars? How do you even, how do you get a visa? So I think as the world deglobalizes, I think it's up to us as individuals to think about how we hedge against that risk. And I think a lot of that is looking past your borders. And I'm not talking about only about, you know, buying an international ETF. That's, that's a nice start. Uh, that's about 2% of the process. Yeah. Okay. I want to, I want to dive a bit deeper onto that because you know, we, we talked about maybe a big structural shift in the security of U.S. dollars with the sanctions on Russia and 
how from a global standpoint, central banks may be asking the question, is our USD reserves, are they safe, right? We had a similar micro scale event in Canada uh, earlier this year. We had this big protest head out to Ottawa and there was a pretty lucrative GoFundMe campaign that occurred. Anybody who contributed that to that campaign, whether it was $5,000 or $5, had their bank accounts seized temporarily by the Canadian government. Now, you could look at that and say, look, they had, I mean, I don't land in this bucket, but people say, oh, you know, they had to do it. They had to stop the cash flowing to this massively obstructive event. I don't align with that. Doesn't matter. Here's what I think is that we look at events like that from a static, like a, as a static event, right? Like this, this thing occurred, it occurred once, it's over now. But nothing in nature is static, right? We move on a trajectory. And I look at this like, Okay, that opened the door, similar to how central banks all over the world are looking at the U.S. sanction of USD reserves from Russia as US, the U.S. opening the door to we could do this again. And that's a slippery slope. It's always easier the second and third time than it is the first time to you know, break the seal. Same thing in Canada, right? We had civilian bank accounts seized for, very, for, for aligning with a, with a social cause, right, and exercising a civil liberty. But now that door has been opened. And my question is like, what's the next one going to be like, what's, is this a trajectory into what? And before I get into my next question, what do you think about that share, Cam? Like, am I, am I sensationalizing something or no, no. what do you think? No, I, I think it's like a, you know, it's like a, a, a human relationship, right? If I let you say something to me or do something and I don't say, you know what, that's not acceptable. And if I don't put a stop to that right now, you're going to do that same thing next time. You're going to do something a little bit more next time. Right. And then next thing I know, you know, the quality of the relationship is completely deteriorated. I feel bullied and everything else. I think it's, it's sort of a, a messy metaphor, but no, I totally agree. And once it's done once, uh, you have precedence. Yeah. You know, you have some yeah. sort of basis to do again. So yeah, I, I, everything you just described, I find, um, yeah. I find kind of terrifying actually. Terrifying. I mean, as I got, I got kids, right. And my kids are too young to contribute to that. And if you saw, you know, tens of thousands of dollars coming in from out of country, maybe raise a red flag, but what, if, what about the, the 20 year old, you know, who, who gets wrapped up in the spirit and man, like, I think of the things that I used to, to do, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, what if, what if, what if my son was 18 and is like, I'm, I'm in on this cause and sends $15 and suddenly they're, they're flagged now, right. For something so innocent, it just blew my mind and found yeah. it very, very unsettling, very unsettling. Yeah. Okay. Um, you talked about diversification. You mentioned languages and citizenships, which are big buckets. So um, how would one get started on that? You know, if they're not sitting on, you know, $10 million and they're looking to distribute this globally, but they're raising a young family, they own their home, they have a mortgage, but they're not sitting on excessive wealth. They don't know how to distribute or allocate. You know, what are some entry-level steps, right? This is similar to like dollar cost averaging into a new asset class. Eventually you have a significant holding, you know, what's the DCA entry point into global diversification? Uh, I think a... Uh, that's a good question. Um, I think uh, there, there are a lot of potential venues, right? Ways to do this. First, in terms of citizenship, a lot of people don't realize that they have uh, a way to get uh, citizenship through, um, through their grandparents. A number of European countries do offer citizenships by uh, ancestry. Um, that's, that's a huge arena that 
you know, couldn't really go to in, in a whole lot of depth and it's not really my, my specialty, but there are a lot of ways to do that. Um, what I think, what I found most powerful is it's, it's a lot more difficult if you have kids in a mortgage, but when you're younger and you're not encumbered by, by a lot of other responsibilities, say, you know what, I'm going to go someplace. I'm just going to go there and I'm going to live there. Uh, and I'm going to figure things out. So you're 18, you're 20, you're 25. Yeah. And you say, you know what? Screw it all. I'm going to go travel. I'm going to go someplace. And that gives you an understanding of what the world is like and what the world is. Or even if you're mid-career and you say, you know what? This isn't for me. I'm going to go off somewhere else. Mm. And traveling today is so much easier than it was 20 years ago. You can you know, stay in Airbnbs. You can find out about visa regulations so easily. Yeah. There are a million things you can do. Uh, wherever you go, you learn, you know, you start to learn a language. I think that's a, an important first part. I think just to get back more to your question, owning real estate internationally is not as difficult. It doesn't have to be as difficult as, you know, you might think it is depending on where you go, depending on the sorts of conditions. And that's a fantastic way to kind of be able to claim residency through the back door and eventually citizenship. A number of European countries, Portugal, Spain, have a lot of a lot of ways to do that. Um, it's not cheap. It requires time. It re does require investment. Um, and it depends on what your time horizon is. If you have a multi-decade time horizon and you want your kids to have sort of a vision of the world that is beyond the country that you live in, mm -hmm. in my mind, there's no better investment um, yeah. than doing something like that. Uh, and those those barriers to access, as you mentioned, are decreasing, right? Because more and more, even young families are pursuing the nomadic lifestyle and, um, and mine included, right? We were, we were, you know, making the decision recently whether or not we would spend a year in Costa Rica starting in September. And we had our house in Squamish. We had a renter who wanted it for a year and there's, um, yeah, actually great school systems and, and, uh, and lots, lots of individuals who seem to sort of go down for a year or six months at a time, right? And therefore the, the cultures and communities are very accepting of that because it's normalized, right? That you're going to have a couple of kids in school for a year or six months. And then, and then actually my guest this morning, Robert Breedlove, he's been on the road for two years, right? He's now in Costa Rica with, uh, with his family and he's been all over the place. And, and the barriers to that lifestyle are decreasing, I think, which is interesting. Now you mentioned, uh, you mentioned diversifying your 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 wealth out of financial systems. Immediately, I'm like, would you qualify owning physical gold, or would you qualify owning Bitcoin as diversifying your wealth outside of your country's borders and financial system? Yeah, yeah. I think I'd prefer to own the gold not within the borders of okay the country. Yeah, because you know, in the same way that. The government can, can, you know, governments have very long tentacles and those tentacles are a little bit weaker if the asset is held abroad. Right. I'm not, I'm not talking about anything illegal. I'm just talking about just being outside of that sort of structure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, certainly gold. I'm thinking also just have something as simple as having a bank account in another country. Um, there are a lot of, it's increasingly difficult for US citizens at least to hold uh, bank accounts outside of outside of the U.S. because of all the FATCA and, and a number of other regulations and oh, yeah. banks say no, we don't want you. But there are some, um, and that's incredibly powerful. 
uh, and you report it, you know, the IRS knows about it, but it's somewhere else and it's not held in US dollars. It's held in a different financial system. Um, I think that just makes so much sense. And you can even invest it. You can find a brokerage house that's, that's stable. Uh, some, uh, you know, for US citizens, there are options in Canada, in, uh, in the Middle East, even in Singapore, um, in Hong Kong, there are all sorts of options, uh, different sorts of financial institutions that do take Americans' money. Um, and that's a, that's a great start because the, you know, we don't talk much about banking failures in, in the US, but they happen all the time. They mostly happen of small banks you and I have never heard of. And the FDIC does ensure uh, banks, and there are banks that are too big to fail. You know, JP Morgan, Bank of America, they're not going to go bust ever. But that doesn't mean that there can't be a whole lot of volatility. That doesn't mean that things that happen in other parts of the world regularly, even in Europe, you know, developed, well-regulated, that banks freeze. And it takes months for people to access their money. And it just, uh, to me, it's part of diversification. It's part of, part of um, peace of mind to put your money somewhere else. Mm. Okay. I want to hit you with a bunch of tactical questions, Cam, and uh, acknowledging that nobody has the crystal ball, but you know, what's your perspective on a handful of recent market events? And let's start with crypto. Uh, let's start with Bitcoin. And uh, are you an investor? Are you allocating capital? Is this crash cyclical or is something structurally different? Um, yes, I've bought crypto for about several years. Um, uh, I think it is uh, similar to a lot of developing asset classes. Uh, there's a lot of froth. And then the next collapse, you see a lot of that froth being uh, it evaporates. It's gone. A lot of capital being destroyed because those ideas were actually, a lot of those ideas were not very good in the first place. The best ones survive. And then they live to see the next dawn, which will come. I don't think this crash, this collapse is all that much different from previous ones. It is alarming when Celsius uh, essentially says, you know, says no mas. <laughs> it yeah. is alarming when Binance uh, says, guess what? If you hold Bitcoin, you can't withdraw it. Um, I think it's still a, an asset class that is very young. Um, but no, it's, it fills a need. And I think that part of the, the, one of the most exciting things about the blockchain is that we're not entirely sure what that need is. And we're kind of grappling to figure out what that need is. And, and it's an overused comparison, but I think the comparison with the internet is so apt because in the early days of the internet, it's like, okay, what is that thing? Oh, we don't really need that. And it took a while to find the best case, the best use, the best use case. Yeah. Yeah. And now the internet is, you know, it's, it's, it's the backbone of our lives. It's the backbone of the international economic infrastructure. I think it's a question of time before those different best use cases of blockchain and therefore of cryptos continue to evolve. I think we're getting there, but short answer, I think, no, my cryptos will be around forever. Our kids okay. will be talking about cryptos like we talk about the US dollar. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. That's fascinating. And, uh, you know, I, I, I bought Bitcoin this week. I haven't purchased Bitcoin in about a year, right? I, I felt maybe a year ago that, okay, things are getting a bit crazy. And I took my foot off the gas. I just dollar cost average in. I don't try to time the market at all. 
but every two weeks would purchase an allocation. And I wasn't early. I was like spring of 2020, maybe for about a year, just, you know, I wanted a horse in the race. Wasn't quite sure what I was buying, whether it was just a speculation, maybe a future currency, maybe a safe haven asset class one day. And I think it's too early to tell 14 years isn't enough of a history to say that with confidence. But I was like, you know, similar to our conversation about central banks buying gold, that tsunami of capital, everybody I had on my show in the spring of 2020, everybody was like, some some equivalent of a non-zero position in Bitcoin. Some were going all in, like Raul Paul. Others were just slowly tricking, trickling a bit of money in there. But you know, the variety of guests from every walk of life, 90% of them were saying, I'm allocating cash to Bitcoin. I was like, okay, I see an avalanche of money. I, I want to get in front of it. That's the goal of a retail investor, spot the avalanche and put yourself in front of it. Um, but I'm back in the market buying Bitcoin. They haven't been for a year. Um, Okay, very, very cool. Um, and I agree with you. So many people have contacted me or just mentioned to me in the last six months that they're sorry they missed the Bitcoin opportunity. They're like, ah, you know, it's it's too expensive now. Like I, I missed that one, right? And it's like, okay, well, this is what it looks like when that bus backs up to pick you up, right? The bus <laughs> is full of blown up companies, bankrupt investors, like horror stories, just terror. And that's, that's what it looks like when that bus backs up again. So do you really want to get on it? Like now is the time, but anyways, I don't know if now is the time, but I'm, I'm, I'm getting back in the bus now. Um, okay. Energy sector. So, uh, you know, we're seeing like as high as what did I hear? $7 and, and 89 cents in some town in Northern California per gallon of gas. It's, you know, crazy high numbers. My question is like, China largely is sitting, not really uh, participating in this. Thousands of tankers just sitting idle. The economies are still very slow, if not shut down. You know, energy prices have skyrocketed and the world's largest consumer of energy isn't fully active yet. And so is this just the beginning or what are your thoughts on that, Kim? Well, you know, I, I it's so funny to be here and listen to all the talk about high gas, high uh, gas prices in the US because in so much of the rest of the world, gas prices are permanently and structurally far higher than they are now in the United States. <laughs> so yes, it's, yes. It always makes me laugh. Like, oh dear God, $5 a gallon. No, yeah, dude, yeah, yeah. that's not so bad at all. But I think the, um, I think one of the most fascinating uh, repercussions of the Russia-Ukraine war is that suddenly the world's, one of the world's top three producers of natural gas and oil is off the market. Now it's not entirely off the market, but it's off the market of the huge consumer of the EU. And now the EU is scrambling to find alternate sources. And a lot of that Russian oil, it's still being sold, but it's being sold at a discount and it's kind of off market. Um, and I think this is, uh, well, it's incredibly bullish for fossil fuels uh, because all of a sudden, the whole Western world is saying, wait a second, <laughs> we need that stuff. It turns out that renewables are not quite ready for prime time. Uh, they can't step in. They can't, you know, they're only 20% of total production, if I recall correctly, in, uh, in the US, which is a lot, but compared to oil and gas, it's nothing. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And all those oil and gas companies that are written off and, and labeled as stranded so much of their reserves, well, those are incredibly valuable again now. Uh, it's all incredibly bearish for ESG and that whole sort of approach to investing because now oil and gas are, well, they're, they're not going away. 
uh, I think that some of the um, some of the yeah, most interesting investment opportunities, even still now with oil relatively high, are in uh, are in U.S. based oil and gas producers because they're absolutely the, the U.S. government now has a greater appreciation for how energy is a is a question is an issue of national security. Um, just two years ago, the U.S. became energy independent. That is, it produces as much energy as it consumes. Um, and that has become so much more important. Can you imagine if this war had broken out 20 years ago when the U.S. is still importing millions of barrels of oil per day? There would be you know, riots on the street because the price of gas would be $8 a gallon instead of $5 a gallon. Um, Jay, I, I've lost track of your initial question. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you haven't. And I want to pull on, on that, actually. So, um, well, I was asking if when China fully comes back online, because right now hmm. like, Shanghai is still under lockdown, um, you know, when this massive economy starts consuming the historical uh, amount of energy that it requires, like, is this just going to exacerbate fuel costs even more? Like, do you think so? Or what are, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, you think so? Okay, we're just getting started. Yeah. So then, question for you there: Europe, yes, has said we're going to wean ourselves off of Russian oil and gas. Sounds great. How are they going to do that? <laughs> Who knows? I don't know. Biden has said, you know, we're gonna we're gonna fill this gap for you. How's he going to do that? Again, that's very unclear. So the more likely scenario might be that winter comes around, gets really cold in Europe. And European countries have to put their best interest forward and go back to the hostile neighbor, which is Russia, and say, look, like we don't have a choice. We'll take your oil and gas. Sorry, USA, but we need to protect our people right now. And I'm, wa I'm wondering, because like if this is some kind of a new Cold War, like how will the new battle lines be drawn? And what's a country like Norway going to do right without Russian gas, oil and gas? What's Italy going to do without Russian oil and gas? What's a country like Saudi Arabia going to do when their biggest client is China and people tend to protect their biggest clients? So like, is there a, a sort of global restructuring right now in terms of the geopolitical landscape as we presently understand it? I think that there's a, a 2012 book called The Dictator's Handbook by uh, two political scientists, um, Bruce Bueno de Mesquita and Alistair Smith. And the basic premise of the book is that politicians will do anything to stay in power. And uh, that, I mean, that, that's their primary objective, which is, you know, everyone kind of knows that. But um, also that they have a, uh, the people who really matter are, uh, to, to uh, help them stay in power are the, it's often not who you think but it's the people who are most responsible for them being in power in a very immediate sense and the people who support them to remain in power. So um, like in, in dictatorships, the, it's, it's the people who support the dictator and that might be oligarchs, that might be the head of the military mm -hmm. and it is the job of the dictator to keep those people happy. And if they're not kept happy, uh, they're going to be you know, kicked out. Now in democracies, it's a little bit more complicated because you might think, well, it's the people, but it's not the people. In the United States, it's not the people who, excuse me, elect the president, but it's a very small subset of the people, right? In the United States, you can say, well, the only states that really matter 
in terms of electing a president, it's four or five states, right? The swing states. And so if I'm a, uh, a um, if I'm running for president, I'm going to focus all my interest or 90% of my time and energy on those four or five states. So in practice, how many people in the United States actually elect mm-hmm. president of the United States? A very small minority. Mm-hmm. Um, all that goes back to, well, we have to look at the interests of, of the countries that you were just saying, who ultimately stands to experience the most pain uh, and how will politicians react to that? So I have no doubt that politicians with their primary objective being to stay in power will do whatever it takes. And if that means that, you know, they have to cozy up to, to Putin, well, does that mean I can stay in power longer? Yes, well, of course, there's mm-hmm. no question. Mm-hmm. Uh, politicians don't operate on a multi-decade time horizon. They're not thinking, well, if we do this, what happens 20 years from now? Yeah. No, that's why Germany, that's why so much of the EU has known for years that being so reliant on Russia was a bad idea. That's no secret, right? They knew that. Mm-hmm. They've been told ever since George W. Bush and for God knows how long, guys, you have to consume less Russian energy. But they didn't really do anything because they were looking at the next electoral cycle. And weaning off is hugely painful. So when push comes to shove in the scenario you, you described, yeah, I, there's no question about what they're going to do. They'll protect their best interests, of course. And that's speaking individually, right? We sometimes forget that. It's really easy to forget that the leader of a country is a human being just like you or I, right? They're looking for the same things you and I are looking for, personal gain, career advancement, right? Protecting our immediate friends and family, whatever those things are, right? But uh, yeah, okay. Yeah, no, sorry, just to, to expound on that. I think that it's very easy from a geopolitical perspective to think about a country as being this one unified sort of force, but no, yeah, yeah. even the people in leadership positions, they are a series of, of a bunch of individuals who have all their own issues, their own objectives, their own ambitions and policy of a country is the product of all that crazy. It's kind of like a market, right? We talk about the market did this. Well, no, the market doesn't do anything. The market is consists of trillions of interactions mm. and thoughts and people and actions. And we only see the product. Mm. So yeah, that's right. It's why it's so clutch. And you know, my 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 newsletter, the podcast, all of it is built around like my individual pursuit of increased personal sovereignty. And you know, define that however you want. What is personal sovereignty? Call it freedom, independence. I define it more about like embracing the fact that nobody has my back and that's good news because it puts me in the driver's seat if I can step up and take control, whatever that is. And yeah, we can look at the wealth picture. That's one that's very relatable on my channel. But if you think the money supply is corrupt, like just get ready (laughs) to jump into the food supply. Like it's arguably worse, you know, And, and personal sovereignty needs to encompass all of that. Right. And truly understand like, it'd be nice if everybody was looking out for each other. Right. And Often we are, I I believe in the goodness at our core, but you know, when it comes to managing at extraordinary scale in terms of leading a country or a state or even a province, it's like, I I can't have that dependency. I just will not, it's a horrible idea, right? Yet it's a trap that we fall into, right? We fall into it all the time. And that's why looking at your assets as from much more holistic, that's part of all that sort of protection and guarding, safeguarding your own sovereignty for whatever happens at, at a, a state level that you can't control. Yes, 
Kim, this has been awesome. I'm really glad that you could come on the show today and chat with me. I want to push people to where they can find more about you. Where should we send them if they want to catch up on what you're writing and the content you're creating? Jay, I would just direct people to stansberryresearch.com. And that's pretty much the portal for uh, for everything that, well, for where I where I write and, and produce. Okay, stansberryresearch.com. It'll, it'll be in the notes beneath the, uh, however you're listening or watching this. And uh, Kim, it was an absolute pleasure. Super fun conversation. Uh, would love to do it again sometime. Likewise. Thanks very much, Shay. If you enjoy my content, do me a favor. Follow or subscribe to this podcast. Drop me a rating and a review and share this with a friend. All of these things allow me to get bigger and better guests on the show. Now you can catch me all over social media at jmartinbc. Thanks for tuning in.